Amen. Our scripture again is taken from Genesis chapter 33, and we'll read verses 1 through 11. Genesis 33 and verses 1 through 11. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom the Lord or whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed, bowed down. Esau said, Why, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered uh, to find favor in the sight of, the Lord, of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. But I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him. And he took it. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, it's my contention that one of the things that we see in the New Testament is clear articulation of doctrine. In other words, what we believe about God, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about the steps of salvation and various aspects of salvation. And in the Old Testament, in the historical narratives of the Old Testament, I would argue that almost every major doctrine of the Christian faith is illustrated in the historical, personal narratives of many of the Old Testament saints. And certainly that seems to be the case with probably, in fact, not even probably, the two most noteworthy twins in all of Scripture. Now, the reason I say they are noteworthy, and of course that is the person of Jacob and Esau. What makes them noteworthy is the fact uh, is, is that the circumstances and the various details of their lives are used in a broader, in the broader biblical narrative to demonstrate especially the dynamics of the doctrine of election. That's the way they are presented in Scripture. In the New Testament, and when I say the New Testament, but Paul in Romans 9 is really quoting from Malachi in Malachi 1 verse 3, where the prophet says, or God says through the prophet, um, I have loved you, says the Lord, 
But you say, how, you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. He goes on to say, and I have left his heritage to jackals of the, of the desert. Now, in Romans chapter 9, and most of us are familiar with this quotation from Paul, citing Malachi 3.1, in Romans 9, verses 10 and following, Paul picks it up and enlarges on what Malachi says. And in explaining the dynamics of the life, or the dynamics of the doctrine of election, through the life and circumstances of Jacob and Esau. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 9, uh, Paul says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So Paul picks up on the theme that's, that's addressed by the Lord in the prophecy of Malachi, indicating that in the circumstances of the birth and, and uh, the, the birth and order of the birth of Jacob and Esau, God uses the reality of their circumstances to illustrate the dynamics of the doctrine of election. To go back a moment, let's look at the circumstances of their birth. We know that they were in the womb and to, uh, it was, they were twins and wrestling in the womb. In fact, that's how Jacob got his name, the wrestler, the, the heel grabber. And he grabbed onto the heel of his brother, but Esau was born first. And according to the custom, the firstborn was to receive the birthright, which was not only a larger inheritance, but the role of, of the spiritual and, and basically the, the head of the family at the, at the demise of the father. Of course, in redemptive history, the birthright of that, the one who receives the birthright is typological of the seed of, 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 of uh, Abraham, which is ultimately Christ. And in him is the consummation of all of the promises of God, who is the big brother of all of those who come to faith. So there's something that's connected to the redemptive promise, even in the, the establishment of the birthright. But here's what happens. Esau is born first. And yet, God makes it clear. Because what ends up happening is Esau is born first, and therefore he is to, to receive the birthright. But Jacob was a conniver. And he got, some little, got a little help from a conniving mother who played favorites with Jacob, and, and she made sure that uh, she helped him connive a plan that would trick his brother out of his birthright. And it worked. And when, uh, when he was blessed by the father, his father, uh, uh, Jacob or Isaac, he was blessed by Isaac to receive the birthright that should have been his brother's. Now, hold in mind, God chose them 
while they were, before they were really, he says, while they were in their mother's room, the Lord, a womb, the Lord said that the younger, the older shall serve the younger. And, and Paul says this was to demonstrate the dynamics of election. So what do we know about Jacob? Jacob was a conniver. He had no problem lying and deceiving his father or cheating his brother. But God chose him for salvation. God chose him to play an integral part in the plan of redemption and the family lineage that would present to us a savior. So we, it's not about virtue. It's not about good versus bad. It's about the doctrine of God's cho- uh, electing grace, the ones that he chooses to save. Now, that being the case, what we see is that God not only demonstrates the doctrine of election, and and what does it show us? It shows that God chooses to save sinners. Now, all of us, we all know in, in, in theory that we are all born in sin, but God shows us our sins up close, and he doesn't choose one and not another Because there's more virtue in the one than there is in the other. God's choice of election, God's choice of of, uh, Jacob over Esau is simply because or simply according to the sovereign will and purpose of God. Now, however, this evening, as it's not my intention to focus on the dynamics of the doctrine of election demonstrated in the lives of these brothers, but as you see from our text, we're actually, it's the backdrop is really a reunion. And in this reunion, the, the, our point of focus is not the dynamics of God's electing grace, but rather what we will see played out in the lives of these brothers is the dynamics of God's providence in the transformation of those that he chooses for eternal salvation. Jacob was a a conniver, but we will see, and and so therefore, he is not chosen by God because he's good. But because he is chosen, we see that he he is transformed into a better individual. There are a couple of things that we need to look at here, uh, that being the case, uh, that we want to look at at uh, this, this, this story of reunion that's set forth in Genesis chapter 33. But there are at least four steps that we need to take to get the backstory. Sometimes you need the backstory to fully appreciate the drama that's being unfolded in, before us. So I'll make reference to a number of passages, some of which we will read, others I'll just allude to it. But there are four critical areas in the backstory. The first one is this, and that's found in chapter 29, verses 41 through 45. Before we can fully appreciate the reunion of Jacob and Esau, we must see the spirit of their separation. The spirit of their separation. It wasn't a matter of Jacob saying, well, you know what? I need to go to another place, see if I can make my fortune, and, and brother, I'll, I'll see you when I see you. That, no, that wasn't the case. What we see in chapter 29, 41 through 45, is that Esau was planning to kill Jacob. Okay, we can't forget that. 
In fact, it's, Rachel, it's, it's, it's his mother, Rebecca, who again comes to him. And, and just as she devised a plan to get the birthright from the, uh, from that, that should have gone to Esau, she also comes and she gives, she gives puts a, a word in Jacob's ear, look, your brother's trying to kill you. And it's this that caused him to all of a sudden, well, it's, it's a good time to leave. So the spirit of the separation of the brothers, Jacob and Esau, is a spirit of contention and a spirit of animosity. Here's the second step in the uh, second part of the, the backstory, and that's the contention that was between Laban and Jacob that eventually led to his return home. And this is recorded in chapter 31, verses 1 through 3. Uh, In chapter 31, I'll read those verses. It says, Then Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what uh, was our father's, he has gained all of this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father's, and to your kindred, and I will be with you. That's a critical part of the story. Jacob leaves home in a spirit of contention and animosity with his brother because Esau is looking to kill him. And then Jacob goes and lives with his uncle, who happens to be a bigger crook than Jacob, and, and now his, 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 his uncle's sons are angry at him. Now, according to the flesh, Jacob was rich enough to go wherever he wanted to go. And if he's going, uh, if, if he left home because his brother was looking to kill him, the last place he needed to go was back home. But the Lord told him, you need to go home. Go back to the land of your fathers and your kindred. So the second step in the story, that the backstory is first off the spirit of, of uh, the spirit of contention that marked the separation between Jacob and Esau, and then secondly the contention with Laban, his uncle, that 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 led to the circumstances where the Lord tells him eventually you need to go. Here's the third thing: when Jacob does set out and the Lord tells him to go, now hold in mind it's the Lord that told him to go home. But when Jacob decides to go home, he attempts to assuage the wrath of his brother according to his own schemes. Look at how works play in. Remember what the Lord told Jacob, go home and I'll be with you. I'll be with you. But Jacob, when he goes home, we see this in chapter 32, especially in verses uh, 3 through 8. In fact, let's look there for a moment. In chapter 32, verses 3 through 8, when Jacob gets ready to go home, it says, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and, uh, and there are 400 men with him. Notice the very next phrase. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The Lord already told him, I'm with you. Go home because I'm with you. But Jacob was afraid and he was distressed. Eventually he prays, but before he prays, look at what he does. He was afraid 
and he was distressed. And so then we are told that Jacob came up with a plan. Jacob sent messengers, or excuse me, he not only sent messengers, but then it says that he was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, in other words, let's put some other people's lives on the line. If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will be able to escape. Now, by the way, the gifts that we see listed in verses 1 and 2 is not as uh, an honor, but Jacob, that's Jacob's plan. The reason he sends all of these gifts that are lifted, uh, listed in verses 1 and 2, and it comes back to our text in chapter 33, is he knows that he's guilty and his plan is to send all of these gifts to Esau so that he could buy him off. And perhaps Esau would not want to execute vengeance on him for, having, for Jacob having stolen his birthright. But on top of that, he is afraid. And because he's afraid, he is willing to put others' lives on the line. In other words, let's play, a, let's play a shell game with the lives of other people. He's a father. He's a landowner. He is, he's a property owner. He's all of these things, and yet he's willing to put everyone else's life on the line. We'll set up in different camps, and if, Jacob, if, if Esau hits one, then the others can escape. And look at who's in that, on those camps. Children, women, and people who look to him for leadership. So we see the contention that led to the division between he and his uncle, and we see thirdly that Jacob attempts to assuage the wrath of his brother, not by trusting in the Lord, not by trusting in the one who told him to go home, but he comes up with a scheme of his own. Then the fourth thing that leads to our backstory is Jacob has a little encounter. We see in chapter 32, verses 22 through 32, the famous story of Jacob wrestling with God. Now, the end result of that, we can, it's, not, it's not my intention to go into all of the details on the wrestling match that he encounters with, that he has with, uh, with, with this emanation of God, this angel of the Lord, or this, this manifestation of the glory of God that he encounters. But here's the, here's the key part. The key part is that his, his hip was put out of socket so that Jacob no longer walked with a swagger, but rather he walked with a limp. And I've shared before that one of the preachers I used to love listening to as a child always said this. He said, Jacob was a better man limping than he was before. And brothers and sisters, that is, we talk in the New Testament about the Lord putting a thorn in the side of, 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 of Paul so that he would not be exalted above measure. And what the Lord does is take the swag right out of the swagger of Jacob. And so now he goes facing his brother, and he faces his brother with a limp. And that's what leads us to the scenario before us. 
there are three things in particular that we'll note about the reunion. And the first thing is this. When Jacob approaches Esau, he's no longer struck with fear. He's limping, but he's no longer afraid. The contrast, of course, is, goes back to chapter 32, verses 6 and 7, when Jacob saw Esau coming and he heard the noise, or he, heard the, he got the message that, Jacob, that Esau is on his way with 400 men. Then all of a sudden, his plans went out the window, and Jacob became afraid, and he was distressed. But here's what we see in verses uh, in, in, in chapter 33, verses 1 through 3. And Jacob lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, Esau was coming. And 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front and then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. But notice this part. He himself went on before them. In other words, he went in front of them. And instead of swaggering, instead of coming up with plans, Jacob now with a limp is looking to God. And whereas he was willing to put women and children in danger because of, remember, he was chosen not because of his virtue, but those who are chosen by God are conformed by God, are transformed by his grace. And so there's almost a palpable difference with the mindset of Joseph it's, or, or Jacob. It's no longer me, 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 but now he lines his children and his wives up and he gets in front of them. And not only does he go before them, notice his posture. He bows. He bows seven times as he approaches his brother. And I would argue, brothers and sisters, when we contrast Jacob in chapter 32, verses 6 and 7, with what we see here in chapter 33, 1 through 3, the difference has to be in the limp. It has to be in the limp. And I, by that, I don't mean that limping will make you trust, but I mean that God has encountered Jacob in such a way that he is no longer depending on his own schemes. He has been rendered weaker in the presence of the power and the glory of Almighty God. But he is reminded that the God who wrestled with him and who put his hip out of socket is the God who told him to go home in the first place and the God who told him that I'll be with you. Now all of a sudden, Jacob is approaching Esau as if God is with him. Here's the second thing we see. Not only does, is there a change in Jacob's disposition and his mindset as he approaches his brother, but in verses 4 through 9, we all of a sudden see that God has also done a work on Esau. Look at verse 4. It says, but Esau 
ran to meet him and embraced, and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. I can't help but think of the story of the prodigal son and the father who waits for the son to come home. And then when the son is willing to be made a servant, the father falls on him and kisses him and gives him a robe and kills the fatted calf. You know that story. Hold in mind that Jacob is the one who is still the recipient of the birthright. Jacob is the one that the Lord loves. Esau, he is, we've already read in two places, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And there is no spiritual heritage that's connected with the line of Esau. But God is sovereign over all things. And brothers and sisters, the God who has the power to call us unto salvation and to bring us salvation through his son is sovereign over everything. And just as the Lord dispatches, he dispatches birds to deliver food to his prophet, just as the Lord prepares the whale or the great fish for Jonah, the Lord prepares the heart of Esau for Jacob. Brothers and sisters, oftentimes we claim God's power and we claim God being for us, but we're not always willing to trust him. And when we do the right thing, we must trust that the God who saved us is enough to protect us. And there is nothing, even if Esau came with rage and anger, there is nothing that Jacob can lose that has been secured by the promise of God. And so, Jacob encounters something he wasn't expecting. He encounters a brother that he's cheated. And he now has to go and face him. And the Lord has melted the heart of the brother. Esau said, I want to kill him. <laughs> And, and, and Jacob's mother said, you need to get out of here because your brother says he wants to kill you and I don't think he's playing. But when he goes back and the Lord has put a limp in him because before when he was swaggering, he was planning. With swagger come schemes. But when God takes his hip and puts it out of socket, there's a humility in Jacob that he didn't have before he left home. He didn't have it when he was in the service of Laban. And he doesn't have it when he's on his way home this time until he encounters the Lord in the wrestling match. But here's the third and final thing. God becomes the lens through which Jacob now sees his brother and even the actions that he's taken, because at this point, Jacob is, is coming and Esau comes upon him and he, and he weeps, we, they weep together and he kisses his neck. And then so, so, so Esau says this, he says, wait a minute, what is it? Because now he's referring to the gifts that are in chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. He says, what are all these things that you sent me, all of these gifts? And, and, and Jacob says, well, listen, and here's the change. 
You see, what prompted Jacob to send those gifts in the first place is because he was hoping that his gifts would change the heart of his brother. But it's not the gifts that change the heart of the brother. It's God. And when God has changed the heart of the brother, now Jacob is able to see in Esau. He's able to see, he says, when looking into you, I see, it's like seeing God. But notice how he follows that up. He not only says it's like seeing God, but in verses 10 and 11, it says this, that, that Jacob says to his brother, he says, um, uh, in, yeah, beginning in verse In verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. But I have, for I have seen in your face, which is, uh, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. In other words, the gifts now are not trying to bribe God or bribe Esau. But the gifts that he's telling Esau to keep are actually tokens of affection, respect, and reverence. Brothers and sisters, so it is with our good works. We do not serve God with our good works so that he will accept us. We think, and there are many Christians that still think that way, we do not serve to be accepted. But when we receive the gospel of grace, we serve God with our gifts and with our talents because we have been accepted. And so what Jacob sees in the face of his brother is he sees the acceptance that he has with God that he doesn't deserve. Does he deserve this from his brother? No, he doesn't, because he's stolen his brother's birthright. But in receiving forgiveness from his brother, it makes him mindful of the forgiveness that he's received from God. Brothers and sisters, we are saved, not by works lest any man should boast. We are saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God. Because we are quick to boast if we think that we have done anything, even if it's humble boasting. But with a hip out of socket, and with the brother's anger and wrath turned away, all of a sudden the words of God that he told him back when he first told him to go home, all of a sudden they make more sense. And so Jacob, who has left home because he was afraid for his life, returns home because the Lord sent him home, but he was trying to return on his own terms with his own conniving. And in these circumstances, we see the transforming work of God in those that he has sovereignly called unto election. Now, all some people are going to see, why is Jacob walking funny? But he knows that he is walking with the Lord. And where he's weak, he is reminded of the strength of God. Remember the prayer of of Paul 
He said, I prayed three times that the Lord would remove this from me. Remove this thorn from my flesh. And the Lord said, nope, I'm not going to do it because my grace is sufficient for you. And in your weakness, my strength is made manifest. And in the weakness of Jacob, we see the grace of God manifest. That he changes the heart that has sinned. And he changes the heart of the one who's been sinned against. Because God is greater than our issues. Thank God for the illustration of, his, of how he changes us, even through circumstances. Providentially, he sends Jacob home. But when he sends him home, he finds grace. I pray that we would be conformed by the same grace that called us from darkness into light, by the same spirit and by the same promise of the same God. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, again, we come to you thanking you for your tender mercies in Christ. We know that you have not saved us because of our works. You've not saved us because of inherent virtue in us. But all that you have saved, you have saved us for good works. You have saved us so that we would learn more and more what it means to trust you even in difficult circumstances, being reminded that you are with us. And when you are with us, even when we face what appears to be danger, doing your will according to your purpose is always right. Thank you, Father, for your word. And as it's magnified in the lives of your saints, we pray that we would integrate these things into our own thinking so that we would walk in the light of your grace even as we see with the saints of old. We thank you for this word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? Now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be power, majesty, and dominion, both now and forever. And let all of God's people say, Amen.